Heavenly Father, we pray now that by your Holy Spirit you would open our eyes so we understand what we're seeing in front of us. Thank you for these spirit-breathed-out words. And we pray that we would see what they mean for us as a church, for us as individuals, for us as we live in your world today. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, one of the joys of coming to St. John's since we arrived um, at the beginning of this year has been part of a church that is truly international. It's not always the case in every church in the UK um, or even in London that you will find so many nations represented. Um, But it is a joy to be one family with many nationalities. Let me see if I can uh, get some of them. So English, French, Spanish, Italian... Irish, Scottish, Nigerian, South African, Australian, New Zealander, Indonesian, Chinese, Japanese, Korean, American, Canadian, Russian, Indian, Iranian, Afghan, Mexican, uh, even Welsh. (laughs) What have I forgotten? Jamaican. Others? Covered most of them. Well, with diversity comes difference, not not necessarily because of our nationality, but also just because you get a bunch of human beings with different backgrounds in one room, and you will find a whole range of different approaches to life. Sports fanatics and couch potatoes, scientists and arts graduates, Brexiteers and Remainers, left and right, wealthy and poor. And some of that all spills over into the way we do church. You know, do you expect to start on time? Or is kind of 10.30 more of an approximate ballpark at which to kind of generally aim? Is our music way too contemporary for your taste? Or is it no way contemporary enough? Do you struggle with our approach to baptism or Holy Communion? Or the roles that men and women take in our church? Or do you think, no, they're right on the money? There is plenty we could fall out over if we wanted to. And that's before you get down to the level of kind of personality clashes and the way we perhaps unintentionally hurt each other from time to time and the things we do or say or the things that we never do or say. There's plenty that could divide. And what we've been seeing so far in this letter that Paul wrote to the Ephesians is that these things matter. Unity matters. Unity matters because God has a plan for his his world that involves a future day where he will unite all people and all things everywhere under one head, under Jesus. Chapter 1 verse 10 spells that out. And then in the rest of the first three chapters, Paul shows the implications of that for the church that the church is designed to be a scale model of that future reality. The place where you get to see the plan in action in advance. Now we've seen over the past few weeks that being a Christian is not just about me and God having a one-to-one, but it's about us being brought into this new community which is a foretaste of the future. The, the walls have been broken down between different types of people. For, for them then, the big distinction was between Jews and Gentiles. 
The big shock was that all kinds of people now relate to God on the same terms. It's not about having the law or not about keeping the law. It's about faith in Jesus. And it's the same today then, isn't it? Whoever we are, whatever our background, there is only one kind of Christian. That is the kind that says, I can't do anything to save myself. Naturally, I'm dead in my sin. And so whether I'm a criminal or a consultant or a pastor or a petty thief, I need Jesus just the same. And that sameness brings us together into one body on the same terms. And so chapters 1 to 3 have given us that, that picture. And they've given us what you might call the theory, the theology that underpins this new identity. And in the second half of this book then, we, we now get to say, okay, so what? We move from God's new community as a kind of theological, theoretical idea to a life-changing reality. This is actually meant to change us. It's meant to change our church. It's meant to make a difference. And in these verses, we begin to see those implications spelt out in in the first half of chapter 4. If you look down at the headings, there's a kind of pattern as we go through these verses. There's something that's true. There's something that's already happened. And then that gives the implications for what we should do in response. You can't have one without the other, you see. You can't always stay in the realm of theory and never change your life. But you also can't just throw out commands and things that we ought to be doing and practical instructions without linking that to what God has already done. So let's see that. First of all, from verses 1 to 6, you are united, so keep the unity of the Spirit. Paul says to us, you are united, so keep the unity of the Spirit. As a prisoner for the Lord, then, he says, I urge you to live a life worthy of the calling you have received. Verse 1. So do you see what Paul is saying? He's saying, think of the calling you have received, think of what you've received in Jesus, in other words, and live in the light of it. It was the same back in chapter 2. You have been saved by grace through faith. Do you remember that, if you were here? So chapter 2, verse 10, we are God's workmanship, created in Christ Jesus to do good works, which God prepared in advance for us to do. So we're not saved by good works, but for good works. Now, people sometimes mishear this, however. And, And it's misheard as something that you might call a debtor's ethic. What is a debtor's ethic? It's the idea that you've been given something really amazing and you now need to pay back the one who gave it to you. So do you know the film Saving Private Ryan? Private James Ryan is the last surviving brother of four American servicemen, the other three of whom have all been killed in action in Europe towards the end of World War II. And Captain John H. Miller, played by Tom Hanks, and his squad are tasked with finding Private Ryan somewhere in Europe towards the end of World War II and bringing him home. And after much fighting and the loss of almost all of Captain Miller's squad, they find Private Ryan. But then Captain Miller himself, Tom Hanks' character, is fatally wounded in one final bridge defence. And as he lies dying... He turns to Private Ryan and he says, earn this, earn it. 
and the scene cuts to an elderly man standing at a grave many years later, and it's Private Ryan standing at the grave of Captain Miller in Normandy. And Ryan turns to his wife and he says, have I been a good man? Was I worthy of such a sacrifice? And it's highly emotional after all that you've seen in the film, and it makes a great film, but in many ways it's tragic. Because how can one man's life somehow pay back the sacrifice of the many lives it took to rescue him from France and prevent him from being the fourth son that one mother had to lose in combat? Could he really ever live up to what Captain Miller commanded him to do as he lay dying on that bridge? See, that is a debtor's ethic. Do you see? Pay back what you've been given. It's like a mortgage. You know, here's a massive sum of money. Now, spend the rest of your life paying it back. And even if it's still interest-free, it's still a big burden, isn't it? Now, whatever you make of that in the context of Saving Private Ryan, when it comes to the gospel, that is a terrible way to think about what God has done for us. Because what does it lead to? It leads to a life of sort of fearful, joyless duty. How can you possibly repay the death of Jesus? Well, if it could be repaid, it wouldn't be necessary, would it? So it's not a debtor's ethic that is in view in verse 1. It's more of a lover's ethic. So the US pastor, John Piper, talks about a man bringing a bunch of flowers to his wife. She says, well, why did you bring me flowers? And he says, because I had to. It is my duty. Now, there's no joy there, is there? There's no relationship. But this is different, isn't it? This is more like this. It is, why did you bring me flowers? Well, because I love you. Because I can't believe I'm in this relationship. I'd do anything for you. Not because I think I need to pay you back for your love for me. That's not what I'm doing but because every day I remember how fortunate I am. And I, I'm just expressing that through flowers. Do you see the difference? Live out what you have received, says Paul. And in particular, live this out in terms of practical, humble service. You are united. Act in a way, then, that builds unity rather than breaks it. That's true of those words in verse 2, isn't it? That here are a bunch of practical, real-life things that you can't do unity without. Be humble and gentle, be patient, bearing with one another in love. Pride and empire-building and holding on to positions of power no matter what, th these things destroy unity. But humility is the opposite of that. And it doesn't come easily to us, doesn't it? We, know we might put on a, a veneer of humility... But deep down we worry, well, if, if I don't look after my, my own interests and, and sort of push myself forwards when necessary, well, who will then? But there is something more important than you and me and our personal ambition. There is the body of Christ in which pride is a cancer that will destroy that body. But humility is the medicine that keeps that body healthy. I think of a guy in my last church who was the headmaster of a big public school, you know, an independent school. But 
You wouldn't know that on Sundays. You'd be most likely to find them handing the biscuits round after the service. See, with humility then, Paul says, comes gentleness. This is about those who are weaker. Weaker physically due to age or illness. Weaker intellectually. Weaker due to language barriers. And patience and bearing with one another is showing that gentleness that we ought to show, not just once or twice, but over and over and over again. You know, I can't believe he's not listening to my advice. What an idiot. I can't believe I'm having to explain myself to her again. I can't believe he never reads his emails. I've made myself perfectly clear. I can't believe her attitude to timekeeping. You know, does this mean, you know, we've had enough now, it's time for a cutting comment to put the idiot in their place? Or is it the opportunity to demonstrate patience again? Because that is how God has treated us in our weakness and sin. It's not that you can never sort of, you know, you might need to come alongside someone and encourage them and help them with with a particular issue, whatever it is, that's causing problems. But do it patiently. Verse 3, make every effort. You see, unity is not just an option when everything else is going well, we'll try and be united. No, it's commanded. And it's not something we have to create. We already have it in the body of Christ if we're Christians. It's the unity of the Spirit. The unity the Spirit has given us in Christ. He unites us to Christ. And in Christ, we are then united to one another. And that's how we come to be united, despite all the differences between us that we thought about before. Different people, different backgrounds, we are united in Christ by the Spirit. And that's important to see as well, because there may actually be times when we we have to say, do you know what? What we have here isn't unity in Christ by the Spirit, or with, with a particular group of people, or whatever it might be. Because actually you think, well, no, you believe things about Jesus that are so different from what I believe. You, you, know, you don't believe that he's God, for example. Or you don't believe that he should be Lord in every area of our lives. Well, actually, we don't have unity. And that's an incredibly serious and sad thing to say. But it's not that Paul is saying you must have unity at any cost. It's that you have unity in Christ by the Spirit. When you trust in Jesus, when you come to him and accept him as Saviour and Lord, you are united, but it's the unity of the Spirit. Not just any kind of human unity of kind of staying together, whatever. whatever. No, it's the unity of those who trust in Jesus, the unity of the Spirit who unites us with Christ. And that is the unity we must keep. That's why he then emphasises the oneness of, of the body of Christ alongside the oneness of the Holy Spirit. Verses 4 to 6, if you look at the oneness of our hope, our Lord, our baptism, one God, one Father. Do you get the point, guys, he's saying? You know, it, it, would, it would be okay to divide if in the end there were multiple gods or in the end there were multiple ways of being right with God, multiple ways to the one God. You know, you could go your way and I'll go mine and it doesn't really matter, but that's not how it is. We have the unity of the Spirit in Christ with the one God. So keep that unity. 
Then if you look down, by the time Paul gets to verse 13, he's talking about maturity. But in between, he talks about how the church grows up and gets there. So what's what we're going to see now in the second uh, point there? You are being equipped by God's word, so listen. You are being equipped by God's word, so listen. Verses 7 to 12, the first half of verse 12. Verse 7, what does he say? Christ gives gifts of grace. And the picture then, in verses 8 to 10, is of God's people getting to share in the spoils of Jesus' victory. There's a quote from Psalm 68, which is about God's people benefiting from his victory over his enemies. And that verse that he quotes there in verse uh, 8 in Ephesians chapter 4, that kind of summarizes the whole message of that psalm. And we've seen the, the same, we, 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 see, we see this exactly the same in Ephesians, haven't we? That God raised Jesus and he seated him in the heavenly realms and then in Jesus we benefit from what he has done. And this then extends into gifts that he gives following his victory. He came down to earth to live and die. Then he ascended back to heaven, verse 10, to fill the whole universe like we've seen God has promised in chapter 1, verse 10. So what are these gifts he then gives us as fruits of his victory over sin and evil as we are joined to him and we benefit from his victory? He gives us gifts. What does he give us? Verse 11, he gives us people. Apostles, prophets, evangelists and pastors and teachers. And the thing that unites these groups of people is that they're all ministers of the word in different ways. Now, the, the apostles and the prophets are the foundation of the church. Chapter 2, verse 20, Paul has told us that. Apostles are those who were sent by Jesus back in the first century. Prophets are not the Old Testament prophets, but, but New Testament authoritative preachers of the gospel who prophesied in the days before the church had the New Testament scriptures to preach. So, that, so the apostles and prophets are kind of foundational. They were for that time then, but they, they are the foundation on which the church has been built and continues today. But on the other hand, the gifts of evangelists and pastors and teachers are for all time. That's clear in the way that the rest of the New Testament speaks about these roles. And it might look like there are three different things here, evangelist, pastor and teacher, but actually pastor and teacher go together in the original language so that they're one type of person it's not two types of people you know you can't be a good pastor if you can't teach people and you can't be a good teacher if you can't pastor people if you can't care for them they are one and the same thing so what is their job then what is their role in the church well evangelists preach the word outside the church and pastor teachers preach the word inside the church. But as the word is preached, what happens, verse 12? God's people are prepared for works of service. And what this means then is that actually all Christians are ministers. Because what does the word minister mean? It just, just means servant. That's what it is. It's another word for servant. So in churches like ours, we have somebody called the minister, the senior minister. That's me. But we need to be careful that we don't end up thinking that it's the minister's job to do all the ministry. Because actually, what's the minister's job? The minister's job is to equip all of God's people for ministry. 
using the gifts of the word. Using preaching, using Bible study, using one-to-one teaching, but all focused on teaching God's word to equip all of God's people. See, it's like the difference between a bus and an orchestra. So lots of people think that church is like a bus, where the work is done by the bus driver and the bus driver's staff members who kind of collect the money and keep the bus going. And then there are loads of passengers who kind of get on the bus and come along for the ride. And the passengers may be very proud of their bus. They know what good and bad driving looks like. And they're fairly confident that most of the time on a good day, this bus gets driven adequately well for their tastes. So they're kind of sticking around. And they enjoy having a reputation for being passengers on a well-driven bus. A bus that people on other buses sometimes feel slightly jealous of. And those who've been passengers for longer on the bus have a kind of theoretical commitment to the idea that the bus ought to keep picking up new passengers. But they don't really know the newer passengers. And they feel, you know, they've earned their seats at the back of the bus where you don't need to do anything. See, that's the bus view of church, but it's not the Bible's view of church. See, it's not about staff versus passengers. The picture is more like an orchestra. You see, everybody has a part to play if the music is going to sound anything like how the composer intended it. Everybody's different, contributing in different ways, but everybody is involved. You have to stick to the same score. You can't just randomly pick up your instrument and play whatever you like. And so there's a conductor at the front, as it were, but their job is to guide the orchestra through the music. And that is the job of the pastor teacher. Not to perform all the music, the ministry, as it were, but but to enable it to happen through teaching and equipping from the Bible. And serving, of course, is is far more than ministry. It's far more than just filling up rotors or doing your bit on Sunday morning or whatever. It extends out into the world because we are still the church on Monday morning. We're just scattered far and wide. And our job is still to serve Christ. Our job is still to do the ministry of the church, in fact. Because that is the ministry of the church. When we gather together, we have ministry to do here. When we scatter into the world, we have ministry to do there. And that is the church's ministry. And so the preaching and teaching of the word feeds and enables and equips and encourages that 24-7 ministry wherever our week takes us. So many churches like ours like to think of ourselves as Bible-teaching churches. And if you're looking for a a new church someday, you, you might have it in mind that you're looking for a church where the teaching of the Bible is given due weight and prominence in the life of the church. But actually, if you look at what Paul is saying here, is teaching the Bible enough, according to what Paul says here? Is, Is it enough to nod along to a sermon and mentally tick a box in your head that says... Yes, I heard a biblical sermon on Sunday, more or less. Job done. Or is the point actually not whether we are a Bible-teaching church, but whether we are a Bible-obeying church? See the difference? 
See, a Bible-obeying church is a completely different thing. It's a church where every member is really listening and then doing what they hear God is saying through his word as it is proclaimed and explained. So that's a question for each of us. The only passengers, in that sense, in a Christian church should be people who come on Sunday, perhaps, but don't yet know Jesus. And if that's you, well, please keep coming. Please keep listening. But don't feel that you're supposed to be doing anything until you're convinced that Jesus is who he says he is and that you want to follow him. But for the rest of us who call ourselves followers of Jesus, don't miss the challenge here. Each week at St. John's, we we seek to proclaim God's word as faithfully and clearly as we can. But that's not to entertain, it's not to make us feel good, but it is to equip us. It is to get us serving. Here when we gather together on Sundays midweek or whatever it is, there's plenty of ways in which we serve one another. But it's also to get us serving as the church in the world, in our workplaces, with our neighbours and friends and families. Making Jesus known there as well, serving him. That is what we are equipping one another for. So you are being equipped by God's word. So listen. And then thirdly, you are heading for maturity. So build one another up in love. You're heading for maturity, so build one another up in love. Now it's perhaps a slightly random place to break up these verses in the middle of verse 12, but it's an attempt to capture the logic of what Paul is saying. The point of being equipped by God's word is to make us grow up as a church, to make us become mature, reaching unity between one another and maturity in our knowledge of God, verse 13, knowing Jesus fully. And then he paints two pictures of what this could look like. On the one hand, if we don't do this building up well, we remain like infants tossed back and forth, blown here and there. What's he talking about? He's talking about the danger of false teaching leading us astray. So for about five minutes earlier this week, I was taken in by a piece of clickbait on Facebook, which seemed to be telling the story of how a guy had invented an algorithm to buy and sell Bitcoin, called Bitcoin Loophole. And they were saying, for for an investment of a mere £200, you could be reaping £5,000 in a matter of days. And the thing that drew me in was there was a newspaper article, and it was written up to look like an article in a national paper, complete with pictures of no less than Philip Schofield and Holly Willoughby, who the article claimed had recently featured this Bitcoin loophole on ITV's This Morning, and during the programme... Apparently, sitting there in the studio, Holly Willoughby had had done this and had doubled her money in 10 minutes. I thought, goodness me, this is really impressive. And I was being sucked in and I sort of clicked on the thing, what do I do next? Where do I sign up? I thought, actually, I'd probably better just Google this. And lo and behold, as I did, there was link after link warning that this was a complete scam. And on closer inspection, it turned out the national newspaper article was a total fake been written in such a way with all the right images and icons in the right places to make you think that you were clicking on something real. Now, of course, you look at it in the cold light of day and you think, well, how on earth could that possibly be real? The whole thing is ridiculous. But people fall for this kind of thing all the time. 
And why do they do that? Well, I guess it's a mixture of total ignorance and naive, wishful thinking. And if that's the case with financial scams, how much more do we need to be sure that we're not being led astray in our spiritual lives when the stakes are infinitely higher? See, someone who falls for the Bitcoin loophole will lose £200. Someone who falls for false teaching about Jesus loses eternity. It matters. And that's why we need one another to keep pointing one another to the truth. Do you see? That's why he says, verse 15, that we must speak the truth in love to one another in order to build one another up. This is a one another thing and we need to keep on uh, speaking to one another. Now, often we prioritise one of those things over the other according to our temperament. Speaking the truth in love. You know, we, we, we might be truth tellers, but we bully people into agreeing with us. Or we might be loving and kind and warm and pastoral, but we end up compromising on truth because it's just easier. So maybe if somebody, you haven't seen them around on a Sunday for a while, what do you do? If you're worried about that somebody's pursuing an unwise relationship, what do you say? See, truth and love are not alternatives. They go together like flesh and bones in a living, breathing body. See, the, the, the flesh is love and the bones are truth. If you, take, if you do truth without love, what do you have? Well, you just have lifeless, cold, hard bones. If you do love without truth, well, that's a kind of flabby with no substance, nothing to support it. And both, if you think about it, sound like something out of a horror movie. What we need is truth spoken in love. And it takes wisdom to do that, but it helps... You're thinking, well, how do I know if what I'm doing is loving, even if it, in the short term doesn't feel loving? Well, it helps if we get the goal straight, like Paul does in verse 15. See, what is the goal as we speak the truth to one another? The goal is that we grow up into Christ. Now, it may feel more loving to let someone be and never challenge them, but will that help them grow up into Christ? Is saying nothing always the most loving thing we can do? The goal is for the whole body to be built up by each member playing its part as we grow up into Christ. So we are united. Let's keep the unity of the Spirit. We are being equipped by God's word. Let's make sure that we listen and that we do what we hear. And we're heading for maturity, so let's build one another up in love. Let me pray. Father, we praise you for uniting us in Jesus. As believers in Jesus, you have united us by your spirit into one body. We are united. We pray then that we would keep and guard that unity as very precious. 
Help us to listen when your word is taught and proclaimed. May we be equipping one another to grow and to serve. To serve when we gather, to serve when we're scattered. And we pray that we would be building one another up in love as we head for the maturity that you have promised us in Christ. Give us wisdom as we do that for one another. And I pray that in Jesus' name. Amen.